Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello. Say why to drugs is back. This episode is the first in a small new series of the podcast that will include episodes like this one about a particular substance, as well as episodes that look at concepts such as the link between music and drugs. I've some fantastic special guests coming up too, including Adam Fajcek, the drummer from Baby Shambles, who is also a trained psychotherapist working with musicians with substance use problems. As for this episode, I was lucky enough to be able to speak to the author Mike Jay while we were both at the Wellcome Trust recently in London. Mike has just written a book all about mescaline, exploring its twin histories across its ritualistic use via its natural occurrence in cacti, and its use in Western societies in relation to psychiatry and the arts, as well as recreationally. Mescaline is a psychedelic, and we don't really touch on what psychedelic effects are, so if you're interested in that, I would suggest delving into the back catalogue of the podcast and listening to the psychedelics episode and possibly the DMT episode as well and that'll give you more information on that aspect. But for now, sit tight and enjoy Mike and I discussing the rich cultural history of arguably the first psychedelic. Mike J and I say why to mescaline. To begin with, can I just get you to briefly introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Mike Jay. I'm an author and a curator. Uh, I've written a lot of stuff about the uh, history of uh, science and medicine, and particularly about um, mental health and drugs. And the reason I've invited you on the podcast is because you've just published a new book. That's right, isn't it? I have. It's called Mescaline, and it's subtitled A Global History of the First Psychedelic. So I thought for this episode then we could talk about mescaline, because we haven't done an episode about that on Say White Drugs yet, and you seem like someone who's very much an expert. Yeah, it's one of those subjects that... um, when I said I was writing about a book about mescaline, everybody went, oh, wow, cool. And I could never quite work out why. Was that people thinking Aldous Huxley or are they thinking Hunter S. Thompson? But I think one of the things is everyone's heard of it, but nobody's kind of taken it. Well, so my first question was going to be, what, what is mescaline? For, for, the pe- for the few people perhaps who haven't heard of it, what is it? Mescaline is it's a classic psychedelic. 
but slightly different from the other classic psychedelics. And um, it occurs in nature in two families of cacti from which it was first extracted. Then exactly 100 years ago, in 1919, it was first synthesised in the lab. And after that, it was available as a kind of white powder. And so it's a psychedelic drug. So what are kind of the effects of consuming mescaline? It's, in some respects, it's, or the, the closest comparison is things like um, LSD or psilocybin, or that sort of tryptamine. And those uh, are the classic hallucinogens. psychedelics, aren't they? They yeah. are, and mescaline's always called a classic psychedelic. In fact, when the word psychedelic was coined, you know, by um, uh, Aldous Huxley and uh, Humphrey Osmond, at that point it referred to mescaline and LSD. So it's kind of an original psychedelic. Uh, and I call it the first psychedelic in the book because at that point LSD was relatively new out of the lab. Mescaline already had a long history. But it's different from the other classic psychedelics because it's not a tryptamine, it's a phenethylamine. So it's got a bigger physical component to it. Uh, it's also, you know, you have to take larger doses for it to work. It takes longer to come on and it lasts longer. So it's kind of pretty sort of pretty much a sort of extended quite intense ordeal at a you know full dose it's hard to describe its effects because in a way they're sort of paradoxical on the one hand it's um like other psychedelics it's really intensely visual i mean maybe more visual in some respects you know with your eyes closed you see sort of incredible sort of vivid spirograph patterns and uh, visions that go on for hours it's also unlike other hallucinogens it's quite euphoric mdma was originally developed from it so it's got a bit more of that so it can be very euphoric very rich very visual uh very kind of enchanted but it's also you know quite physically heavy a lot of people experience quite a lot of nausea with it and your limbs can feel a bit heavy and a bit sort of numb at the extremities so it's weirdly kind of pleasant and unpleasant at the same time one of the questions i always like to think about on this podcast is so what's the appeal of the substance so why do people use mescaline and also i suppose then who are the type, groups of people or types of people mm. who use mescaline well mescaline's got a very very long history it's been used since kind of um, prehistoric times in its original cactus forms uh, which are the San Pedro cactus, which grows across the Andes, and the peyote cactus, which grows in Mexico, and a little bit of what's now Texas. So there are lots of traditional uses of it, where it's kind of very, very culturally important and revered. Then when it became available, you know, as a, a drug, a pure drug, an alkaloid, and was first investigated by Western um, scientists and artists and whoever else at that time it was the only thing that did anything like this apart from eating large amounts of cannabis was the closest but this was you know definitely a, a trip and um, all kinds of people experimented with it from all kinds of different perspectives so a lot of people tried to start their own religious ceremonies around it lots of scientists investigated it from different angles artists became very interested in taking it and painting and drawing what they were seeing and then after LSD came along, its popularity kind of dwindled in the West. 
partly, I think, logistical reasons. It's quite, quite a high dose, so if you have a gram of mescaline, that's about three doses. If you have a gram of LSD, that's, whatever, 20,000 doses or something. So it was a bit of a no-brainer that um, LSD was going to take over for that reason. And then um, shortly after that, the chemist Alexander Shulgin uh, had an amazing mescaline experience and then dedicated his life after that to finding um, analogues of mescaline or things which might have similar effects. And he found, famously, uh, MDMA and 2CB and dozens of others. And those are kind of, in a way, they're like mescaline, but they're much easier to manage. Instead of lasting for 12 hours, they last for three or four. So in a way, I think um, you could say mescaline has completely disappeared from modern drug culture, or you could say that it's actually still at the centre of it, but in the form of these stepchildren of mescaline if you like. And is it still used in places like the Andes and Mexico where the cacti grow? Was that a sort of historic use of it or is that something that still carries on today? It's the cacti are being used more now than ever before so on the one hand you can say mescaline's almost disappeared as a chemical but on the other hand the San Pedro cactus which used to be used in kind of magical and healing rituals and sort of Peru and Ecuador and Bolivia a bit. It's now, you know, if you go to ayahuasca retreats in the Amazon, there are San Pedro shamans there and you'll run into them in Ibiza and Goa and Thailand. You know, that's really globalising. And similarly uh, with the peyote cactus, um, the people in the north of Mexico, sort of tribal groups like the Wichol who use it are very famous now, you know, when they have their big peyote ceremonies, you know, hundreds of people turn up. And since the 19th century, it was adopted by a lot of the um, Native American tribes in the United States, the Plains tribes, first of all. Uh, and that was incorporated really for the legal protection uh, into the Native American church. And that is thriving as never before. I mean, there's at least a quarter of a million um, members of the Native American church. So the chemical has disappeared, but the cacti are, you know, really having a moment. So one of the things we were talking about before we started recording was the impact that potentially there might be differences in consuming a plant compared to taking a white powder, both in terms of, obviously, there are other things in a plant, mm -hmm. well, and there also might be other things in a white powder, but that's, a, a, yeah. I guess, a different conversation. But there might be other um, components within the plant matter that might also impact on intoxication experience. But also that expectation and environment might also play a big part. Is that something that you discovered when you were researching the book and in your own experience, that people report differences between mescaline experiences from a cactus versus yeah i mean it's if you read i mean there are dozens and dozens and dozens of descriptions of mescaline experiences almost exclusively from western sources because um people in traditional cultures don't do that thing of i took a cactus and i had this experience they kind of you know tend to regard that as rather crude and reductive you know that it, there's a bit more to it than that but if you read all the sort of western mescaline experiences they're incredibly diverse. Some people have an amazing time, like Aldous Huxley, for example. Loads of other people have a terrible time, you know, and it's, so it's hard to get a sense of it. And I think that's really about this paradoxical quality that it's giving you very interesting and pleasant sensations on the one hand and kind of rather unpleasant and difficult ones at the same time. And some people go off in one direction, other people go off on the other. In terms of the cacti, um, both the San Pedro and the 
peyote have dozens of different alkaloids in which probably do something or other. And a lot of people, I think, assume when they take them that a lot of the unpleasant effects are to do with the fact that you're ingesting this kind of possibly toxic cactus material. But actually, the pure masculine alkaloid has those physical effects as well, very kind of um, intensely. So I think the difference really is um, what I found is if you're taking it on your own or in a kind of experimental context, let's see what this does, then you get really preoccupied by the physical sensations and all the weird things that are happening to you and all the visions that you see when you close your eyes and the strange voices and auditory hallucinations that you hear, you get very wrapped up in yourself. When you take it in a Native American ceremony, then it kind of becomes all about the communal experience and your personal experience in a way you kind of escape, you know, from those physical sensations and you join into something else. And uh, in many ways, I think the Native American uh, peyote ceremony is constructed around the cactus and what it does, and finding ways of harnessing its benefits and minimizing or managing the sort of difficult bits. So, you know, you have music, for example, very kind of insistent drumming and songs and things that kind of bind the group together. And um, it's kind of euphoric, it's a sort of shared experience. So it's a bit like, you know, what you might get at a sort of dance club with MDMA. It's got that element to it. It's also got the ordeal element. Uh, when I attended a ceremony, the, the road man, the uh, guy who officiated, you know, had a little speech about this at some point. He said, this is not a comfortable experience. It's an ordeal and it's meant to be an ordeal. Sorry, guys, but you have to sit up very straight, um, cross-legged for 10 hours. The suffering is not a bad thing. The suffering actually raises your prayers up to heaven. So, you know, think of it that way. Wow. Do we know much about what are the risks from taking mescaline? I mean, I think there's something about in the form of the cacti, it's, um, it's self-limiting. It's kind of, can you get enough down to have the sort of full effect? There are unpleasant physical effects, nausea and so on, but they're kind of gone 12 hours later when the cactus is gone. In the early 20th century, there was a big sort of federal American attempt to close down the use of peyote and to ban it, and they produced kind of loads and loads of testimony about how terrible it was and what a terrible effect it had on Native Americans. But most of that was disputed at the time and has been discredited since. So I guess the biggest risk is it's a powerful psychedelic. You can have an extremely powerful and intense experience and that can be a bad one and that can be something that can take time to recover from. And what about long-term use? Is it a kind of substance that people use really regularly and would use for sort of frequently across many years? Yeah, in, I mean in the Ameri Native American church for example people will convene meetings, they're not at regular times but it's whenever there's something important to mark or quite often there's a healing component, you know people do um, healing during the ceremony so if somebody's sick and needs one then they'll call a meeting on that basis you know people don't increase their dose you know they can take it regularly a few times every year for decades and it stays much as it was and in fact it's got a, one of the big components of it in native american culture is that um, it's an alternative to alcohol and it's used a lot for treating alcoholism and if you join the native american church then you're joining a group of people who are very committed to being upstanding models and ethical core of their community and they won't be the people who are drinking alcohol. But it's interesting you say regularly 
a few times a year, whereas mm -hmm. if someone was a regular alcohol use, that would mean a few times a day potentially. So it's quite a, it's used in a very different way to substances like alcohol or like cigarettes or yeah, that I would kind say of thing. it's it's a, it's regular but more rare. Yes, I mean it's more like a, a other psychedelics. In yeah, that it's sense. not something that seems to be dependence forming. No, and also because it's kind of quite a physical ordeal, it's kind of the last thing you feel like when you've done it is like, oh, let's do let's do that again, you know. So I think it has kind of natural periods of rest and recovery built into it. So I suppose I want to sort of slightly turn now to the book that you've just written. Um, what what led you to write a book about mescaline? There are so many different parts of the mescaline story that have never been put together before. And so I, there are various sort of threads of it that I've followed for quite a long time. For example, that it was used very widely in the 1920s in Germany by psychologists. So there was a whole enormous area of psychedelic research back in the 1920s that uh, most of it is, is still in German and people haven't really written about it very much. So what kind of things were they looking for back then? They were mostly psychologists. The big trial was done by a psychologist called Kurt Beringer at Heidelberg Psychiatric Clinic and he gave it to about 60 people, mostly his medical students. He was really interested in the hallucinations that it produced and how they related to personality, what kinds of people had different kinds of experience and why, when these amazingly kind of elaborate visions appeared, you know, where were they coming from? Was this the same for everybody or, or different? So he generated hundreds of pages of testimony of people uh, describing their hallucinations in real time so there's an enormous amount of and now I can see these silver spinning discs and now they look like they've got flames on them there's a purple light coming from the middle of them and now it's a bunch of dancing elephants you know that going on for hours and hours and hours so what do you do with all that information and he couldn't make much sense out of it in terms of using it to diagnose different um, illnesses or personality types. The most useful um, work that came out of that was by a psychologist called Heinrich Kluver who said, well, if you look through all these cavalcades of visions, there are certain kind of forms and shapes that always appear. A lot of people talk about kind of lattices and webs and things. Other people talk about spirals. So he boiled all this down into, um, you know, a number of what he called form constants. He said, drug seems to produce these kind of visual effects and they seem to be the same for everybody. And people don't, for example, dream about them afterwards so it's probably something to do with the physical mechanism so that was kind of in terms of opening up that field of cognitive psychology that was quite valuable and sorry i interrupted you when you were in the middle of saying what what was it that led you to write a book about it so oh yeah that's i mean I say, psychology you know, stuff was very yes to you. I, I mean that was fascinating and then after that psychologists decided that they would get further if they gave mescaline to artists and intellectuals. So people sat down and injected Jean-Paul Sartre and Walter Benjamin and people with mescaline to see what they made of it. And certain people, you know, gave it to avant-garde artists who took it and drew it. You know, so there's then there's this kind of huge sort of world of art. And all this is happening decades before we think of the sort of psychedelic era as starting. And before all that, of course, there's this long history of use in... Um, that we've discussed in sort of indigenous American cultures. So the other thing that was really interesting for me was to balance those two, to show that there are, you know, very different ways of approaching psychedelics and um, in different cultures, and that the way that we in the sort of modern West have approached psychedelics is not the same as the way that other cultures have done so in the past. Do you think there's something unique about mescaline among 
psychedelics? I think certainly in terms of its history, because it was the only psychedelic for such a long time. But I think it's been hard to plug into Western culture. In a way, LSD has been easier. Things like MDMA have been have been much easier. So I think the richest cultural use of it has been in other traditions which aren't so focused on sort of pulling out the drug effect and instrumentalising it for this or that. Like how can we use this for psychiatry or how can we use this in medicine or how can, you know, um, you know what's kind of very interesting for me about sort of traditional cultures of peyote and San Pedro, Pedro is that people have taken the, um, the plant rather than the masculine it contains as their focus and plant for them has a personality and like all personalities it has lots of different characteristics and they haven't kind of worked to try and like weed out the ones that we want and, uh, and, and sort of not the ones that we don't. So it's kind of a very interesting one for seeing the way in which a culture can evolve with enormous depth and complexity um, out of a natural psychedelic. Magic mushrooms, are they the only other... No, I guess... D- DMT I guess is DMT, natural yeah. as well. And it's interesting that DMT or ayahuasca seems to have had that same kind of cultural history of use in that way, whereas mushrooms perhaps less so. Is that is that correct or are there are, are there ways that mushrooms have been used in that way as well? Yeah, but when the Spanish first arrived in Mexico they found people using peyote and they also found people using mushrooms and they it seemed to them that they were similar you know I mean they saw it in terms of you know these plants have the devil in and it's giving visions to the uh, to the natives but mushrooms are really exclusively in Mexico there's an awful lot of DMT containing plants uh, in South America and their use goes way back into prehistory we just had that great archaeological discovery last week of a guy in the Andes from about sort of 3000 years ago his sort of medicine bag just turned up in a in a cave up in the Andes which included coca leaf and also kind of different forms of DMT and harmine from the ayahuasca vine so i think um that was a part of the world where there was a large kind of range of different sort of powerfully psychoactive um, plants that were combined and had been for thousands of years. What was your, I don't know whether favourite is the right word, favourite or most interesting thing or something that really fascinated you when you were researching the book? I think what I found, the story that I found most fascinating is um, about the sort of crossover from, uh, of peyote from Native American culture to modern Western science, which happened in the 1890s. And it's kind of a fascinating period in history because it's the Wild West, but it's also the fin de siècle. You know, we don't think of those things happening at the same time. But that was the time at which um, doctors and anthropologists and the first people started to notice that Native Americans were using this cactus and that it seemed to produce visions and might be scientifically or medically interesting. And there was an ethnographer from the Smithsonian Institution called James Mooney, who was a great champion of the peyote religion. And he was given a bag of um, dried peyote buttons by Quana Parker, who was the chief of the Comanches, which he then took back to Washington, and that bag of peyote buttons was then passed around. You know, the first scientific trials were based on it, and uh, people like William James took it. So what was kind of a really fascinating bit for me was seeing how that looked, because that was the first time that... um, Western science had really encountered a psychedelic, trying to get a sense of what they encountered and what the relationship was between the traditional culture and the people they handed it over to, and then what the very first Western scientists made of the experience themselves. Fantastic. Well, I highly recommend the book. It's absolutely fascinating, deep dive into the history of such an interesting 
compound, I guess. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, pleasure. And there we go. Mike's book is available from all good bookshops and probably the bad ones too, I don't know. And speaking of books, Say Why to Drugs, the book, is a step closer to publication and with my editor at the moment, very exciting times. It's available to pre-order on Amazon with a release date currently scheduled for January next year. In the meantime, if you're around, I'll be doing science at Cheltenham Science Festival next weekend and at Blue Dot Festival in July, maybe other places as well, who knows. In the meantime, there'll be another episode up in two weeks' time, so see you then. Bye! Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.